This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books in Performing Arts podcast, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. Today on the program, I'm talking with Joey Merlo about his wonderful, uh, insane new play on set with Theta Barra. Uh, Joey, welcome to the program. Thank you, Andy. So Theta Barra uh, was a, a silent film star, never made any talkies, uh, and most of her films were destroyed in a fire. Um, how did you how did you find out about her? And and it, it this place seems like the product of a sort of longstanding fascination with her. Maybe I'm wrong, uh, but if so, could you kind of tell us a little bit about how you kind of got interested in her as a as a as a topic? Well, it's kind of a sporadic fascination, and it began when I was in middle school I think and there was this thing that Yahoo which is a browser that most people don't use anymore um, Mm -hmm. they had this thing where you would upload your picture and they would send you back a picture of your celebrity doppelganger and so you know my sisters did it and they got contemporary celebrities and I did it and I got this black and white picture of this <laughs> woman with this you know these dark eyes and the thick black eyeliner and you know looking really witchy I think in the picture she was like pulling her hair up and um, and I was appalled and I was like why did they give me this what does that mean yeah um, and then I started to do some research and then I you know quickly became honored that I received such an interesting, unique doppelganger. Yes. Um, and all of my friends were getting like, you know, pretty standard contemporary celebrities. Drew and then I had, or whatever. Yeah. And I yeah. had this, you know, this vamp from the late teens, early 1920s. Um, and so that's, you know, I remember doing a, a little bit of a dive then. And I think I also, you know, in my... <laughs> I think I I think I thought, oh, I wonder if I'm reincarnated or something. Like I think like <laughs> discovering Theta Barra, it felt like some kind of omen. Like I was like, why would I get this person? What does that mean? Like what is yes. the universe trying to tell me? Um and I was very into it because I had always been into vampires and witches as a kid and attracted to the macabre and um, you know, villains. But I kind of forgot about her for a long time. And then I started at NYU Tisch and it was like the first year or two. I don't know why 
she kind of came back, but I think I was joking with friends about bad musicals that we we could write. And I thought <laughs> Theta Barra the musical. We also had a Sacagawea the musical. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Theta Barra the musical. And then I I think, you know, I think maybe I thought, oh, I'll actually write this bad musical. And I found a book about Theta Barra's life and I was a little let down because there was nothing very interesting about um, her actual life. What was fascinating was the mythology that the studios created for Theta and that Theta created for herself. But her actual life was um, was pretty normal, and she ended up marrying this wealthy producer, and she retired, you know, with a lot of money herself. And they kind of just moved into this mansion in California, and um, you know. And and that was it. Like she didn't get kicked out of, you know, she didn't lose her career because of the talkies. She kind of retired before then, and um, and uh, then she did die of stomach cancer, which there's a lot of like stomach imagery and parasite, um, the theme of parasites in the play. And during while we were workshopping it, one of my cohort members was like oh I thought it was clever that you know because she died of stomach cancer you have you have all of this like stomach virus parasite you know imagery which I didn't do on purpose and then that was kind of spooky too Mm -hmm. that's great yeah and didn't she live until like the 60s or something like she had a very long retirement yeah she did she she had a she had a long and leisurely retirement yeah. But she had her fun too. I mean, there was something I found. So, you know, as I was writing this play, and it's also interesting that I didn't really do a lot of research again when I began the play, but as I was writing it, I would kind of like dip into research just to kind of just to kind of use as like a kind of a talisman just to try to find um little bits of information here and there. And I found this one video of this woman. This video was I think made you know, who knows, maybe in the 70s or the 80s, but this woman is like in her 80s or 90s and she's being interviewed because she is like one of the last, you know, people who remember Theta Barra and she remembers being a child and she lived next door to Theta Barra and Theta Barra lived in this old, not actually not old, but a kind of like castle looking, you know, house in California. And every day she'd walk past the house and she just was fascinated by it because it kind of looked like a castle. And then one day Theta's husband who was watering the plants outside said, would you like to come inside? And would you like to meet a vampire? And the little girl, (laughs) (laughs) and the little girl was like, okay. And went inside and Theta was like, you know, sitting with a crystal ball and like, you know, tease the little girl that, oh, I, I see your, I see your dog in the crystal ball. He's running, he's running in your backyard, and you know, just kind of pretending to tell the future. Mm-hmm. So I think she still had her fun. And I, I liked hearing stories like that because it made me think, you know, it made me think, oh, this is somebody who was a true thespian in many ways. And yes. somebody who was, was a true actor, you know, she wasn't completely controlled by the studio system. She, she was really, um, she was driven herself and she obviously had, like there was an authenticity to that kind of personality too. Yeah. Um, with yeah. the Raven also, which comes up in the play, we have a seance in the play where uh, David Greenspan as Theta Barra recites the Raven. And um, 
and I, I learned that Theda would also have these big Halloween parties every year and, and, and she would recite the Raven to her guests. Wonderful. That's so great. Yeah. Um, I, I love that story. It's such a like, could never happen now <laughs> type story. But, but I feel like it does also get to that point of like, she was like genuinely into all this like campy gothy stuff. And, and I feel like yeah. the line between those two is like blurrier than some people maybe recognize, you know? Right. Yeah. And she made her own, she made a lot of her own costumes too. She was very into the creation of this persona and the aesthetic. I love that. That's, that's wonderful. Are you kind of into old Hollywood stuff in general? Is that like a, a, a passion of yours? I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's in like, it is interesting. I don't think it's unique to be a gay man and interested in old Hollywood. There is something yeah. magnetizing about, um, you know, like extracting camp from old Hollywood and, and that transformation is interesting and like projecting onto that from the 21st century is also interesting. And so, yeah, I mean, as a kid, you know, I had a fascination with Marilyn Monroe and it was a closeted fascination because I think at some point I realized that I would, um, that that would give me away or something like even before I really had the language of, Oh, I'm gay or I'm sexually attracted to men. It was like, Oh, if people know I'm interested in Marilyn Monroe, like that's not a good thing. Like I should be interested in, you know, sports or something, but Marilyn Monroe is not the thing I should be like, she's not the person I should be emulating. I shouldn't be trying to impersonate her. My (laughs) step grandmother actually was my, um, was my accomplice in, um, in my Marilyn Monroe obsession because she would order me these plates, these special edition plates, I think from like the Franklin Mint or who knows, some magazine. Amazing, that were, amazing. Yeah, they were these collectible Marilyn Monroe plates. So to this day in my parents' basement, I think I have like dozens of these Marilyn Monroe collector's edition plates. So that's I great. guess that's a yes then to answer your question. Yeah. And I feel like there is like a little straight boy way to be obsessed with Marilyn Monroe. Be like, oh, she's so hot. But I feel like it's pretty, it's pretty easy to tell the difference from, from, for most, I don't know, 11 or 12 year old boys. Like it's. uh... Yeah. Well, I think, and I wonder, you know, like for me, I wonder if it was about here's somebody that had created and cultivated and sculpted out a version of femininity that felt so whole and so powerful and so vibrant that Mm -hmm. for me as somebody who you know I was getting all of the cues from those around me to to not have any kind of feminine tendencies that like then I could project that onto Marilyn Monroe or rather I could have that kind of um, transposed onto me and so that I could you know I could fantasize about being this woman and I think in a similar way um, there's some of that in the play with Theta, a very different kind of femininity and a very different kind of feminine power. But Theta also does those things. And like Marilyn Monroe, Theta's a feminist as well. And there's that quote where she says, um, the power of my vamp is the vengeance of her sex on its exploiters. Yeah. Um, and you know, that was an actual quote from Theta that I did put in the play because it was just too good not to. And, you know, again, it's like, we have these ideas of, you know, what this star from the late teens might've been like, I don't think I would have jumped to 
her being somebody that um, that kind of that radicalized the role she was playing as a as a vamp, which on the outside nowadays especially can look really campy and kind yeah. of um, you know and kind of uh, this the fetid the fetidization of eroticism and mm-hmm. um, of of otherness, but I think that she she really did mobilize that. Yeah. It's such an interesting metaphor there because I mean Karl Marx also like uses the the figure of the vampire as a metaphor for exploitation but she's kind of saying no like my vampire is exploiting the exploiters or something like that like she's kind of flipping it on its head. Right. And I think that that kind of flipping is also fascinating um who has the power and that's something that I wanted to explore in the play also is you know you think it's one thing and then suddenly the tables turn and it becomes another thing and the tables turn and it becomes another thing. And it's, you know, within this prism, it can have a lot of different meanings and what you project onto it or what you see is kind of what's most important, I think, in, and for you to have questions about or reflect on as an audience member. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about kind of the form of the play. It's a, it's a solo show, one performer, um, and, but that, that performer plays four different characters. Was that always the idea that you would have one performer playing the f- four different characters or was there a sort of version of this where you imagine it being like, you know, in like a Brian Friel way, you would have like three different or four different, uh, actors playing the different characters one after another. Was it always going to be a, a one person show? I think that idea, yeah, I think that that was um part of it early on because i think the seed for it was um had to do with identity consumption and the idea that you know i think the original seed was more about celebrity and this idea that with wealth and power and celebrity you can more easily world build or the worlds that exist inside of you can be built outside of you and that anybody who's kind of coming into contact with that world or is attracted to it because you're a celebrity, because, you know, whatever the reason may be, um, that once they enter that, that they become a part of that world. And then what happens to their identity? And um, and so I think that it was important. That was an important idea for me. And, and the idea that the reveal would be that these actually aren't, you know, these actually aren't um, five characters that you're watching, but one character and and all of these characters have been whether they've you know wanted it or been sucked into her or a little bit of both um that they're a part of this body so i always imagined it being one actor and when we workshopped it there was a little bit of discussion amongst my cohort about like oh it'd be really cool though to hear different actors read all these parts because the parts are so distinct but um but then i think that would completely undermine yeah um what the play is like what what's at the core of the play yeah yeah. and the marriage of form and content which i think i was aware of very early on um a a touchstone for me uh reading this script and and when i saw it as well um it reminded me a bit of rocky horror picture show just sort of that idea that like this castle is a place where identity becomes very fluid and where like transformation is sort of foisted on people, but in a way that is also 
seems to kind of be also a figure of liberation. Was that was that a touchstone for you as well? It wasn't initially, but I have thought that a few times, you know, more recently that um, because I think seeing the audience's reaction made me think of it because there were people who were like, I want to see this five times. And, you know, people who were like, I want to come dressed up as Theta Barra. I think that's when I started to (laughs) think about Rocky Horror Picture Show, because I was like, it would be cool if this became a kind of event where people were dressing as the characters and, you know, because there is something larger than life about these characters and, and very um, colorful. And, and um, I think that that would be, that would be fun. I think with Rocky Horror Picture Show, what they share too, is that do you need a castle to have that exploration and that freedom and those transformations happening? I mean, like what's the seed of Rocky Horror Picture Show also is like, you know, these aliens, they're also, you know, these other, other beings Mm-hmm. um that come and 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 queer um in the same way that i think theta barra in my play is a metaphor for queerness and um is something that is a force that is queer and is queering um mm-hmm. and so you know i think that both both of those castles rocky horror picture show and theta's castle maybe speak to um this this uh, imaginative castle that we as a queer community need to create for ourselves in order to feel safe and like to create yeah. a space in order where those things can happen. So I feel like maybe that's how they're connected, but yeah. it wasn't conscious. Yeah. The other, um, the other reference that I felt like maybe was in the play as well is Citizen Kane. It rem- the Theta's castle reminded me of Xanadu, uh, but I don't really, mm. I don't really have anything. I don't know what that, what that would mean or, <laughs> like what that well know. did you someone said to me i don't maybe it was you but i don't know if we've had an extended conversation so maybe not but somebody said oh the long table reminded me of the table on citizen kane when they're sitting on oh. opposite sides of the table was that you maybe not maybe i don't think but so. i guess that's that's something that others have thought about too so i guess there is something there i i do remember seeing citizen kane um you know, another classic black and white film. I did watch a lot of noir and a lot of films from the 40s and 50s, you know, Gaslight, like Mm -hmm. with all those amazing shadows. And um, so there's some of that obviously reflected. Yeah, I had a sort of like weird friend group when I was in high school. And so when we were like 15, we would get VHS copies of The Maltese Falcon. (laughs) <laughs> stuff like mm. that and, and watch them on a Friday night. So I, I definitely feel That's like uh, this, this play speaks to that part of me. Um, I think that we need to talk about the specific performer who is the performer in this speech, which is David Greenspan. Um, incredible, brilliant genius. Uh, Tony Kushner once called him the most talented theater artist of his generation, um, which is also roughly Tony Kushner's generation. So I feel like partially mm-hmm. saying like David Greenspan is more talented than I am. Um, mm. And, and he is just a, a just incandescent, incredible uh, performer. Um, while I was watching the play, I also like had, it, it was sort of a, I've been thinking a lot about like what is good acting because I read the Isaac Butler, the method book, which is really wonderful. And mm. I think for so much of sort of the period from 1945 to, I don't know, 1990 or so, 
verisimilitude was sort of held up as the ideal uh, for acting. Like you should be, you should, you should be as convincing as possible. Mm. Um, and David Greenspan is so great in this play, but I don't think verisimilitude is what he's going for. Um, I'd be interested to hear kind of like, when did David become part of the project? How did his involvement change the project? Were there things in his performance that let you see things about your, your own play that you hadn't noticed before, et cetera? From start to finish, it was all pretty clear cut. I mean, I met David through a friend of mine named Jess Barbagallo, who is um, a wonderful writer and performer and who recommended David for a different play of mine that was um, happening at Brick, B-R-I-C. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, oh, David Greenspan's so famous. He's not going to email me back. He's not going to do this like Brooklyn College reading, you know, for... I think it was like, maybe we paid everybody a little bit or maybe not. I don't know. But um, but I was just like, he's not going to email me back. And he did. And he was like, you know, yeah, groovy. I'll, I'll, I'll do this. Sure. Um, and I was like, okay, great. And I, I had read a lot of David Greenspan's plays. I had seen his plays. I'm a huge fan of his work as a writer. Um, and so that was exciting to have him. And then... I was writing this play, you know, and I just, I really tried, I didn't think of David, um, and I tried not to think of David in this play because it was important to me to write the characters and and to focus on who these characters are and, um, you know, and not think, oh, if this actor wants to be in it, then, you know, what can I, how can I cater this to them? But something I heard over and over again was how many, you know, people came to the show that know David and know David's work very well. were like, you must've written this for David. Mm -hmm. And I think that again, just speaks to his talent because he took complete control of it. And, um, and I feel like David is someone who on a biological level absorbs the text. I mean, he masticates it and it becomes this, you know, it's like, it's like every cell in his body is working towards communicating um, character. And, and I do think that the play was a, a great match for him because I think, you know, I mean, he's talked about like his work getting criticized sometimes for being overly melodramatic or pantomime which is exactly what this play calls for. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think, you know, and I think any criticism is, is, uh, there's like, it's all faulty when it comes to David Greenspan, because I, I've seen him do many different um, things as an actor and I think he can do them all. So just yeah. to say that, but I do think that, yes, he can also do this extremely well. And yeah. I think that this play, I always wanted the audience to kind of meet it halfway. And I, the play is so tight and the language is so dense. And I really, I wanted to kind of like wrestle the audience into a kind of submission where then they are able to become a collaborator and, where there is this, you know, this vocabulary is creating um, an imagistic track for them to, um, for them to kind of click into and create and then kind of co-create. And I think David created um, a physical track and through gesture, um, accompanied like the 
the kind of tightness of these images. And I think that that is also something that he's uniquely talented at. So I think it would have been a very different experience watching a different actor play this because David, you know, physicalizes every single word almost. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, he's so present and his work is so incredibly precise. And I remember the moment where he's like lying backwards on the, the, the table and very slowly speaking some of the words. And I, I just remember just staring at his lips, you know, just being mm. like totally, completely transfixed. And it wasn't like he was doing a lot. It was very, that moment was a very sort of simple, quiet moment, but just mm-hmm. utterly transfixing. Yeah, um, there were times when he's like taking a drag of a joint or when he's, blowing out air into the night and he sees his breath where sometimes I would think I was actually seeing his breath because it's so every there's like such he sees everything and that became very clear too I mean he sees everything and the rehearsal process was like very little actually changed um I wrote this play in you know four or five weeks I was actually very sick um like Theta in a way which is another weird thing that connects Mm-hmm. her to the play i wrote it when i was experiencing c diff which is a bacterial infection mm-hmm. in your gut i mean like i couldn't eat, eat anything i was like in bed for months it was a horrible horrible illness to to have and um and very painful also and like this i wrote this in kind of a fever dream and i think part of me was like oh i'm gonna have fun because i need to create some imaginary friends i need to create an imaginary world like i need to go back to that Thing that we do as children because there was no other way for me to find joy because I was stuck in my room for months and I was like starving myself because I wasn't able to eat so it was kind of like you know I would get up from bed and I'd write 10 pages and I'd go back to bed and then I'd write 10 pages later in the night or the next morning and that's kind of how I wrote it for a few weeks and then very very little changed um we had a workshop and a reading over the summer I so I finished the play last February graduated from Brooklyn College in the spring. That summer, we had a workshop and a reading at Theater Lab. And I that's when I got David involved. I had asked if David would do the workshop and the reading. Um, and he said yes. And then we worked with this director, Jack Serio, who directed the Brick production. And, and I actually wasn't sure I was, I think I was kind of sleep deprived and I didn't know the the little audience that we had at the reading. Like I just was like, who, mostly they were friends, but I just, for some reason, I thought they all didn't like the play and I mm-hmm. got really paranoid and I was like, no one likes this. No one gets this. Like, you know, but at that point, I think we had already gotten into the exponential festival. So I was like, okay, well, I guess we'll keep working on this. And we made some cuts for that reading at Theater Lab and then we continued to cut during the early part of our workshop rehearsal process, we only had like a month of rehearsal. And at every rehearsal, David showed up, you know, ready to go, height of professionalism, set the tone for everyone else. It was mostly just he, Jack, and I. He would come with like five different ideas for every line. And we kind of just, you know, it was a joy just kind of like watching him and and Jack who thought of the concept of the long table and seating the audience around this long 45 foot long table um with David and creating that intimacy where you know and having David utilize the space around the table get on top of the table um act at both sides 
right away we worked with that table and you know we kind of just went straight through the play so it was a very clear simple rehearsal process yeah and you really transformed that space in in the break for this for this production I, i'd never seen that space used in that way where it becomes this like long kind of bowling alley space mm-hmm. um i thought that was so cool and the yeah. uh, the in the I'm trying to, I want to get the exact, so the setting that you give in the printed version just says mirrors, candlelight, shadow. And I read that and I was like, yeah, that was what that set was. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what it looked like. Um, how, so, it, but it seems like that, that was kind of, that set emerged through your conversation with the director and through the rehearsal process. Yeah, the set itself did. And um you know, I really wanted candles for a long time. I was like, there needs to be candles. Why aren't there candles? And then I let go of that. And I was like, you know what? We don't need candles. And this play is happening in multiple time periods. And, you know, it's kind of really taking advantage of the medium. And, you know, the spectacle of the play is David, is the performer. The language of the play is giving you everything you need. Like you really, so then the question is, well, then what role um does the set designer sound designer and lighting designer play and i think it's one of incredible restraint which i think is very hard to do and i think that there is restraint in all of those elements and and it's done so artfully and there's such specificity and and it is kind of everything feels like it's collaborating with david and with the text in such a subtle way something else like I kept hearing from audience members is that it feel they were like, Oh, it feels like one person made this. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there was that unity of vision where um, everybody was on the same page. And, you know, there, it was funny with the sound design because I think we did think, you know, and I didn't write any stage directions in the play. Um, later on, I wrote in the gunshot at the end, but everything is just kind of exists in the text. So there were no stage directions and there were no like specific sound cues or anything. Um, so there was a lot of space for the designers and we did talk about having more sound cues and David being the one man band that he is, um, who is like, well, I never really have sound designers on my plays and I never really have, I never really need that. Like I can do all the sounds like, you know, we try desperately whenever we were like bringing up a sound cue to be like, he'd be like, well, what if I do this? Like, what if I do that? Like, and of course, like it would always end up being more interesting, whatever he came up with than like having the actual sound cue Yeah. until finally, we were like, okay, so no sound cues, but what if we create kind of vibrations in the space so that that is giving the audience a kind of physiological experience. And it's so subtle that most of the time the audience won't even know what the vibe, the sound vibrations, like that, that they're necessarily a part of the show, but that hopefully their bodies will be absorbing it and feeling it. And it will kind of create this atmosphere and this vibe. And I think that that was successful. And and I was worried that, you know, when we went to the sound designer and talked about that, that, um, that he was going to be kind of like, insulted. that he was going to feel like insulted <laughs> and that we like took away his, but he actually was so into it. He was like, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And I, I was glad to hear that. And I think like, cause yeah, I mean, I think in many shows you're figuring out the fake sounds of the birds and the gunshot right. and, you know, the, whatever the realism, but, um, but this was a very different thing. Your David Greenspan impression is pretty good, by the way, Joey. I, I, that was nice. 
I spent a lot of time with him. I love doing my David Greenspan impression. I love David Greenspan as a person and as an artist. As I said, incredible, brilliant genius. You'll you'll get no argument here. Yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit about the the printed book itself, which is a very beautiful object uh, printed by Eureka Press and 1080 Press, which are upstate in, I want to say, Kingston. Is that right? Yes, in Kingston. Um. Wayne Kestenbaum did the art for the book, which yeah. is really beautiful, but also such a weird, I, such a weird surprise to open the book and say, see that name. And it's like, oh, huh. Um, how did that happen? <laughs> yeah. I'm it's, sure, it's, I mean, everything I've read, I've, I haven't read all of his books, but from what I've read, I'm sure he, he read this and was like, this is exactly the kind of thing I like. It's everything I'm into. Absolutely, I'll do whatever. But how did that, what, how did that actual process go? Well, he's another person who's just somebody that I idolize, like David Greenspan, who I'm like, this person will have nothing to do with me ever. And then and then he does. And it's like, wonderful. And he did come to see the play. And he really, he really liked it. And, um, and, you know, even before that, when we were talking about Theta and these images, he got re-inspired. He actually ended up creating these movies that were shown in LA. I forget if it was at a gallery or a museum space. But anyway, he created these images um of like taking old clips of theta barra films and then um you know creating these kind of moving image collages with voiceover over them and with other kind of images layered in much as he does and and um and he was like yeah thank you for bringing me back to theta um because you know i guess theta had been someone in in his world too but i we had like been texting and I just I bluntly um I think I just I think I I, what I asked him was can I use because he always posts his art Mm -hmm. and there were and and I just love his work so much and I think I had probably been looking at a lot of his his image I mean I've been looking at them you know for for a long time now but probably of course when I was writing this I don't know but maybe something about those colors that he was using and the shapes and I I just thought, um, can I, I asked, can I use one of these images um, for the cover of this small batch printing of this play that's being printed um, by this small publishing house? Um, and I, you know, I was like, I, they don't have a big budget, but I think they can offer you some money or they can bring you up for, you know, to spend some time at their, their kind of like this estate they have, this residency that they host. Um, he didn't take any of that. He didn't take any of what I offered. And instead of sending me, of, of giving me permission to use one of his pre-existing mm-hmm. images for the cover, he said, well, let me, let me see, like, like maybe I'll send me some pictures of Theta that you like, and I'll, I'll work on some collages. Um, and then you can pick one. And then sent me like 15 <laughs> original <laughs> Wayne Coast and Palm <laughs> art collages which I was blown away by every single one I loved more than the next. And, um, and then I asked permission. I was like, well, I think the the press asked me, they were like, you know, we could layer these into the book. We can use all of these because they're so beautiful. Um, and I was like, well, I want to get Wayne's permission, but if Wayne says yes, then totally. And Wayne yeah. said yes. And so now we have this beautiful book with these beautiful, unique art collages. One of the other unique things about uh, the the book is that 
rather than having the character names written every time they speak, you color code the first, like, five or six words of each of those. Um, what was the idea behind that? Had you seen... I, I, I don't think I've ever seen that before in a play script. Um, what was your inspiration behind that, and what do you feel like that's communicating? When I first started writing this... Um, I, I think from, you know, early on, I knew that it was that I wasn't going to have character names because this idea again was clear of all of these characters existing in one body. And so I wanted to capture that kind of stream of consciousness, you know, the different voices kind of all a part of one body. And so from the very beginning I started, um, but it, it was, I would write in different, each one had a different font or a different color. Like Mm -hmm. Iris was in purple um theta was bolded finale was underlined i think ulysses was standard font in the original draft um and then no character names ever and just kind of like there was a key for the different fonts in which characters they corresponded to and then each scene was kind of separated by these asterisks and it was just written as this monolith of text and um and then the solution that eureka had for that was what they did with highlighting just the first few words of each character's line with a different color highlighter so that you could kind of keep track that way because they thought that changing all of the fonts for each character would be challenging for somebody who's reading this um and it it did prove challenging like you know for for other people who've read the original draft you know, having finales lines underlined, like that kind of made it hard for people who were reading yeah. it. And, yeah. you know, for David, David asked me to kind of rewrite, not rewrite, but to just change the format to like a more traditional character name, line, character name, line, because, you know, for him through the rehearsal process, he didn't need that, like he didn't need that stylistic choice wasn't going to help him necessarily. Right. Right. It helped me writing it and it helped me kind of maintain form and con- the marriage of form and content and then when Eureka wanted to publish this, you know, I, I said I have the more traditional version, but they were like, well, we actually like, we want to create an art object and we like the idea of this not being a traditionally written play and like that this could be something that people who don't read plays could really enjoy and there's more like experimental fiction. And so we want to publish something closer to the original version. And, and this is also the the unedited version so you know this is like almost um i mean maybe it's almost like 30 pages longer than the version that we ended up presenting like that original draft read at two hours and the play ran like 60 minutes mm-hmm. i was wondering about that because i felt like there was times when i was reading it where i thought i don't really remember this but yeah so it's, it's nice to know that i don't just have a, a really bad memory because i only saw the no. play a month and a half ago <laughs> <laughs> no. And yeah, and that was part of the point too, is they were like, we want this to be a supplemental experience for those who have seen the play that like these two things exist separately, but can inform each other. And, um, but that this can also stand on its own, that the play, the book. One of my favorite jokes in the play, which is partially to do with the formatting is that you don't hear detective finale's name until the finale when he bursts in and says, you know, I'm Detective Finale, was that was was that name because you knew that that was when he was going to announce his name? Or was that 
did you come up with that name for other reasons? Um, I think I, I think I knew that that was when he was going to announce his name. And, uh, you know, I obviously knew the joke I was making with Finale. It's a, so... it's an A plus bit, Joey. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I really had a lot of fun. Like, I think I was reading a lot of Charles Ludlum before I, I wrote this also. So that was like really fresh in my mind. And, yeah. and David, again, is somebody who's like, I mean, he's been in a lot of Charles Ludlum. And, um, and so, so yeah, so I, I really, I liked putting in some, you know, some of those jokes. Yeah. I feel like I, I, I like my experimental theater to have a, a little bit, a, a couple of dumb jokes, you know, like, I yeah. feel like that's, it helps. It helps. I don't um, think this is by any means a pretentious play. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned, David Greenspan, you've mentioned Charles Ludlum. Who are some of your other influences, either on this play or just sort of people you keep returning to as as inspirations? Tennessee Williams has, you know, been mm-hmm. um, an influence and point of obsession. And um, he's so great. He's somehow underrated. Like he's uh, there's there's been a, a little bit of like a a, a backlash I feel like against Tennessee Williams that I see I see people on Twitter being like, oh, he's war, and it's like. You're, you you could not be more wrong. His face is so yeah, extraordinary. I mean that always happens, but obviously his work has endured, and yeah, um, and there's just there's a brilliance there, and I think you know Tennessee Williams inspired me for this play. Just you know that you you don't need that theater is an auditory form, an auditory mm-hmm. medium. Um, that that I think like maybe it's predominantly an auditory medium, and that you don't really need much else than the words. And I think like that's going back to Shakespeare, like everything can be in, like encompassed in, yeah. in the words, you know? And there are some really beautiful plays that, you know, that um, kind of try to do more with visually what they're doing on stage and the pictures they're painting visually. And, and those are really beautiful too. But I wanted to, I wanted to make a, I wanted to try to um, do what, Tennessee Williams did in suddenly last summer, you know, where it's like when I, I mean, where you kind of like you enter that play and in your mind's eye, you kind of like, that's true immersion to me. Like being immersed in something is not like sleep no more as much as it is like, can the writer put you in this world and and then suddenly you're existing, you're existing there through language and um, and this deep listening that happens and this kind of hyper presence. Like I, I'm, you know, inspired as David Greenspan obviously is by Gertrude Stein and this idea of like, how do you keep audiences in the present? Like most theatrical experiences, you're either trying to get ahead of what you're listening to or you're kind of lagging behind, but I think like I was saying before, this idea of how do you like wrangle your audience into submission and, and like um, not in a BDSM way necessarily, but like, you know, kind of um, get them to really just click in and give up trying to understand it and just let themselves exist in the experience and exist in the present. Again, David Greenspan's a great actor for that because I think he keeps you really present because he himself is so present. And so I think in a lot of Tennessee Williams' work, I feel like that happens with its density of language where um, it's world building. And I don't think we see a lot of that in the theater anymore. And that's a kind of theater that I'm very interested in. Um, So yeah, Tennessee Williams, 
like I said, David Greenspan and his work has been an influence, Charles Ludlum um, on this particular play, because there's a lot of other writers that I really love. I mean, I, I went to Brooklyn College for my MFA, and I think this play is definitely coming out of a lineage of Brooklyn College writers, you know, Young Jean Lee, um, and um, the kind of just something that is language forward. Like I think Brooklyn College's program is about, is very much about language and you're allowed to be weird and you're allowed to write a bad play. Like the bad plays are celebrated and it's like, how do you write the thing that's most you? How do you go into those kinds of like, those pockets of yourself and, and kind of like burrow into yourself in a way that then generates something that um, that is truly strange and unique. And um, Adrian Kennedy too. I'm just thinking of Young Jin Lee, and, Young Jin Lee and Adrian Kennedy because of plays that they've had where they've kind of taken, you know, movie star names or famous literary characters, yeah. like the names of these famous historical figures, and kind of appropriated them for the play. Um, so that was on my mind with Theta. It was like, you know, in 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 the work of both those artists. I mean, these these are not the little literal characters, and this is not the literal Theta in my play. Like this is a uh, um, it's a kind of um, manifestation of the mythology of Theta and that like turns into this character that then becomes um, that is also a metaphor for queerness at the same time um, as someone who exists as a kind of threat to Finale and a home for Iris and a companion for Ulysses and is used in the way that the play needs to use her and is appropriate for the play in the way that the Theta character appropriated so many others and um, culturally and otherwise, like there was this appropriation. And so then there's a reappropriation for the purposes of this play. Wonderful. Great. Well, I, I think I, I've about run out of questions, but I would like to ask you, um, is there going to be a, a future for this play on stage? And if people want to uh, get a copy of the play, how should they go about doing that? I hope there'll be a future. Um, we had a really good run and we we sold out and we are pursuing um, the possibility of having a full run because this was a festival run at the Exponential yeah. Festival. Um, Teresa Buchheister, who's amazing, and Nick Adams, they run that festival and um, Teresa runs the brick. And they're very into it. And we've had some other producers, theaters that have expressed interest. So I think now it's like, who's actually going to bite and who actually will help us make it happen again. Um, so hopefully, hopefully within the next year, we'll be able to do it again. And if somebody wants to buy the book, they can, um, they can message me on Instagram at Jojo Merlot. J-O-E-J-O-E-M-E-R-L-O. Um, or they can look up Eureka Press and you can check out Eureka's website. Um, and I and or Eureka has um, an Instagram also. Great. Well, thank you so much, Joy, for being on New Books and Performing Arts. This is truly one of my favorite pieces of theater I've seen in a, in a very, very long time. So uh, I really enjoyed uh, getting to spend so much time with the play and getting to spend some time with you talking about it. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for all of the kind things you said. I really appreciate it, Andy. Oh, you're, yeah, it, 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 you made it easy.
<laughs> Thank you for having me.